0: well, 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 you are listening to the Inspired Minds Podcast. My name is still Jeff Watson. I am indeed your gracious and grateful host, and I am currently in a very echoey room. Why do you ask? You're not, but I'll tell you anyway, because I got a new place, got a new pad, got a new uh, space to hang my hat. Look at that. It's got a lot of echo on it because I haven't put any soundproofing up or poster posters. Like That's going to help with sound baffling. Come on! Uh, So, going to jump right into it. It has been a minute. Been super busy. Both my friend and I, Mr. Michael E. Simpson, the producer of this particular little show. Next up, the lovely and talented Mr. Jim Koff. Jim is a screenwriter, producer, director extraordinaire. Read a lot of films. Good grief. National Treasure with Nicolas Cage. Stakeout, one of my favorite movies. Uh, Great film with... Richard Dreyfuss and Emilio Estevez. Another stakeout, part two, which yes, I saw in the theaters, but far more important for me was a movie a movie called The Hidden. It's a space alien horror movie starring Kyle McLaughlin, guy from Twin Peaks. Michael Nori, I think his name is, I think so. He's fantastic in it as well. At any rate, as usual, I had a great time and I hope that you enjoyed this as much as I did making it uh i think that's all i got for now bye all right ladies and gentlemen of the inspired minds audience you dazzled throng please say hello to the lovely and talented jim Jim kauf my apologies yes that's all right you just corrected me earlier and i just got it wrong please say hello to the audience jim hello glad to be here i appreciate it very very much i'm a we were talking just a second ago when you, again, told me how to pronounce your name, and I got it wrong immediately after. But I am extremely excited to do this with you. I'm a big fan of storytelling. And the first question, though, that I want to start off with, which is the same question I ask every single person on this little show, is when you were younger, what was the first thing that you can remember that truly inspired you when you were a kid? Was it a song, a book, a movie? What lit you up?
1: You mean what, what made me want to be in show business? <laughs> Yeah, maybe
0: that's... Uh, Yeah, yeah, that was
1: the Wild Bunch. Really? I was... You know, I I loved movies as a kid, but I had, you know... uh, And I grew up in Burbank, California, so I grew up, you know, near Walt Disney Studios, Warner Brothers Studios, Universal. I used to sneak into Universal when I was in high school, uh, into the back lot. Um, But... And I... And I wrote uh, short stories and I made movies as a, as a kid, I was always a photographer, but the one thing that set me on the path to the motion picture business was the wild bunch. Cause I went to see that movie with a girlfriend at the time and I had no, I hadn't heard anything about it. I just knew who, you know, I knew the cast, William Holden and Ernest Borgnine and all that crew. And, I said to the, I just saw the ad in the paper and I said, let's go see this movie. And so we went to the movie and it was pretty much sold out. I think there was two seats left in the front row. And when I walked out of the theater, I went, holy shit, that I've never seen anything like that in my life. That's what I want to do.
0: Wow. So was the, that was the, the one that's ahead. Sorry. Was it the hyper-realized violence that also kind of kicked you up a little bit?
1: Oh my God. Yeah. Well, it was a great story. And I actually use this movie a lot now when I, you know, talk to film classes as an example of how to tell a story. But, yeah, I mean, it it had been unlike nothing was ever like that on screen before. So you were just stunned when you walked out. Um, I mean, the Wild Bunch set the path for violence in movies, you know, from 1968 or 1969, whenever it was playing.
0: Yeah, Um, it
1: did. So it changed everything. Uh, but, you know, I still didn't know that how to get in the business or anything like that. So I went away to college and became an English major. And, um, and uh, I actually had a playwriting class. And I kept getting A's in the playwriting class. And at some point I thought, well, if I keep getting A's and this is kind of fun, maybe I can make a living doing this. Yeah. So that's what set me on the path of wanting to be a writer and moving back to, uh, you know, Burbank and, you know, setting out to figure that out. I mean, it's an impossible, you know, thing to do because you don't know, you don't go apply for that job. Yeah. You have to figure out how to break in and how to break in is you have to write a lot of stuff and somebody has to like it. Anyway, I can go into more detail about that, but I'm sure you've heard that before.
0: Well, yeah, it's just you know the whole thing about what is it like ten thousand hours of doing something makes you an expert.
1: Yes, exactly. Yeah, just
0: right,
1: uh, right, 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 and right. Um, but that was it. Wild bunch was really did change my focus, and then the playwriting class uh, allowed me to believe that I could write, and so it was the combination of the two. That sent me back to Hollywood, and you know, set on getting into the business.
0: I love asking this question because with creatives, because there's always something, right? Like that's exactly why I go to oh, this question. Yeah, Western. for me, yeah. it was. Well, awesome. I always yeah. That,
1: yeah, I always ask the same thing of uh, you know writers I talk to, or producers or actors. You know, what made you want to be in this business? And they usually have something like that. For my wife, uh, who was from Ohio. The movie for her was, oh um, uh, God, what's the name of it? It's the uh, Peter Bogdanovich film.
0: Last um, picture show? Oh, I can't
1: think of it. the which one. Last with, picture show? Uh, no, the one after that. It was uh, really? oh God, my my brain has died.
0: <laughs> it was it starring? Um,
1: no, it was with. Ryan O'Neill, the second one, and you know the black and white one.
0: Oh, uh, name's excuse me, but yes, I know what you're talking about.
1: So I'm going to go to IMDb.
0: I was going to do the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'll waste you. Find out what happens. Paper Moon, damn it, It's Paper, Paper Moon. Moon. That was the one.
1: Okay, so that's, that was one – that's the one that made her want to be in the movie business. So she came to Hollywood and, you know, set out to do that.
0: Wow. What a romantic story. I mean, not necessarily just the two of you being husband and wife. Well, we met, we met on the Paramount lot. <laughs> Did you really? Tell me about that.
1: She was doing uh, – she was the assistant to the director on Airplane 2, and David Greenwalt and I – had been hired to write airplane three, and we were uh, on an, an overall deal at Paramount at the time. So we just passed you know each other on the lot and said, Oh, well, you're directing airplane two while we're writing airplane three, and we got yak, yuck, yak, and you know, eventually. That
0: was it. That's fantastic. I love that it's like Bogdanovich and then airplane. Like those are the two.
1: I know, I know. It's like ridiculous.
0: That is amazing. So tell me a little bit more about, like, you know, breaking in because, you know, as, as I mentioned to you earlier in an email, I do do my research. And I think it's really interesting because it does seem like in kind of the beginning, there was like a, like a block of, like, bananas movies. Like, you know, just all kinds of stuff happening, i.e. Up the Creek, Pink Motel, which I emailed you about earlier, Class, which yeah. I loved these.
1: <laughs> well, all right. Uh, so... When you're star- when you're a starving young writer, uh, and you know you don't know how to break into the business, you just. Fortunately, I met a, a group of guys that were all doing the same thing at the same time. One of my high school friends, Michael Meltzer, was became a page at NBC, and then through, and then he went to work at uh, ICM. And then at ICM, he met Dan Petrie Jr. And then through Dan Petrie Jr., we met David Greenwalt. And we all played poker together. And and then there was Dan Ostroff. We all played poker. We had no money. And so we'd go to somebody's house. We couldn't afford to do much. So we would just play cards and drink beer. And, uh, you know, one person got a better job. And then somebody introduced us to somebody else. And the, but, you know, we would get, Because of some of the scripts we wrote, they would kind of get passed around. So the first thing that happened for Dan Petrie Jr. then became an agent at ICM and he started in the mailroom. And so he used to send out our scripts uh, through Jack Gillardi. He would just take Jack's (laughs) uh, letterhead, send out our scripts with Jack's you know let her head, and you know so here's a great script and whatever um but that's how we started you know and we would get these little jobs you know that was a five thousand dollar job to, we weren't members of the writers guild so you had a lot of producers who wanted to do a lot of low budget stuff that's where pink motel came from right and right. the boogans and, and stuff like that yeah um yeah. but they paid the bills you know we were hired to do these Low budget scripts, and you know, we had fun doing it. we were able to pay the rent until we could write something that you know actually got the studio's attention, which at, which we had written, we got hired to do a lot of stuff. David and David and I partnered up because Dan Peachy Jr. Uh, at one time had one job and he had two clients, me and David. So he sold us as a team. So We'd never written anything together, but uh, again, we figured out, well, five, you know, it's better that each of us get $2,500 instead of one of us getting 5000 <laughs> so we'll be able to survive a little longer. And, you know, one script led to another script, which led to another script. And we did all these scripts for all these, produ- you know, producers from all over the place, Australia and Europe and Dave and Divin Jr. and, you know, just a, a bunch of The guys who were looking for cheap writers, we were the cheap writers, but we, but we kind of learned the craft in doing that. So, uh, eventually based on, I can't remember what script it was that somebody read and they said, Oh, this is a really good script. We don't want to make it, but we want to hire you to rewrite this other script. So then we started doing rewrite work and That led eventually to us writing a script called American Dreamer Mm. for uh, Doug Chapin and Barry Cross. And that script came out so well, at least within the industry, everybody who read it loved it. And then we started getting meetings. Right. And then class was the first story that we pitched and Marty Rantzahov bought it in the room and uh hired us to write the script and that's the fact i think that's the fastest movie i ever had made wow i mean i think it all came together and was in the theaters within like nine months or something it was crazy wow Uh, so so we had a we had a blast and we learned a lot and you know that's how we got started it was just a lot of low budget stuff and then finally you know things clicked in
0: I will say this about class, actually, because part of the reason why I like doing these interviews is I get to do the research again. And I, I saw a class a long time ago when I was a kid, and I was right in that moment of, like, Jacqueline sets hot, right? Yeah. So what I thought was interesting is I didn't realize there were so many young actors who went on to do a lot of stuff besides just Anthony McCarthy and Rob Lowe.
1: Oh, God, yeah. There was uh, John Cusack and his sister. Yeah. And um, God, uh, who else did we have? John.
0: I saw, I recognize somebody else in there. too. So. Andy.
1: Rob Lowe. I mean, it was Rob Lowe's one of his first movies too. I think it was his second movie or something like that.
0: That's right. Yeah. Think- um, Andy
1: McCarthy. We discovered Andy McCarthy. Um, um, and that was a big, big, you know, nationwide search for that role. Tell me
0: um, about that story about finding Andrew McCarthy.
1: It was just one of those things, you know, um, Louis Carlino, who directed it, and uh, we got O'Brien behind the movie. And it wasn't an expensive movie, it was a fairly low budget movie. I mean, I guess I think it was about five or six million uh, at the time, but that was early 80s. So that was still substantial enough that we could shoot it in Chicago. And um, i trying to think of what else I can tell you about that. It was um, I, I, Go back to your question again
0: Yeah, sure I was just asking how Andrew McCarthy Or what the search was oh, like Oh, that's right, that's right Yeah, yeah
1: So we we started in LA uh, Lewis didn't like anybody in LA He went to New York It was cattle calls
0: uh-huh.
1: It was the classic cattle calls Everybody's showing up, you know Yep So Andy McCarthy stood out for Carlino. And that's the guy he wanted. So, I mean, we had Rob, we had Jacqueline, we had Cliff Robertson. Yep. Um, we had the rest of the cast. He was the one that we, you know, that they were really doing a big search for. Yep. So, and I think, I don't know if that was Orion's call or, or Martin Rantahoff's call. I really don't know.
0: Well, either way, but, it's, like the, it's like the outsiders in terms of launching other careers.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, you know, you know, John Kuzak was the one that came out, I think, the biggest from the whole sure did. deal. Sure did.
0: Sure um, well, I could yeah. make this whole show about class, but I don't have time, unfortunately. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so I want to move on to, you know, some of the more prominent, perhaps, uh, uh, things that you've done. But I need to call out something. So, again, doing my research, I didn't realize that you you had written one of my favorite movies of all time, The Hidden. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, that was a spec script. Was it really? Just let me, I will say this and then let me, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. That film was so important for me as a kid because I was probably about, I don't know, 15 or something along those lines. And I was getting into like alt cinema a little bit. And the fact that that it was such a beautifully done, it was an incredible movie, you know, with the idea of the hosts going back and forth and the rock soundtrack with the guy driving the (laughs) the Lamborghini or whatever it was. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, the Ferrari.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Give me your (laughs) car. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. um,
1: The only reason I took, I didn't use my real name is that uh, at the time, I also had Stakeout coming out, which was a big studio film. And so the advice I got at the time was, here. there was two reasons. One was, this is a low-budget film, and it's a science fiction, horror-type movie, and those aren't they're, they weren't then what they are now. You know, it was kind of uh, considered a subgenre. Right. So the people said, well, your, your studio career has taken off. You know, this has got these kind of, you know, strange special effects, not really great. They couldn't really afford it. So just, just take, you know, use a pseudonym. So I did. And, I, you know, I regret it now. But when you're young and you're listening to people, you kind of do what they say you should do. So, uh, yeah, that was a spec script that, uh, you know, we had a deal at Disney at the time. So I had to show everything to Disney first. And obviously they couldn't make that movie. Right. But uh, Bob Shay did at New Line. And uh, Jack Shoulder did a great job directing it. And we had a great cast. And uh, no, it's a fun movie. I mean, it's still people still <laughs> that's one of the pictures they, they call out most, oddly enough
0: yeah yeah you nailed it it's a fun movie it's just a lot of fun yeah, it's fun.
1: yeah it's well of- we i wanted to do yeah an alien who really loved like the human you know culture of america the, the culture of america with hard rock and roll and fast cars and he knew nothing could kill him so he was just gonna have as much fun as he could
0: have that's right strippers with guns Big guns. Yep. strippers with
1: guns. Oh, that was part of the fun too, is what can I take this creature into? So, um, you know, I have, I have ways of expanding on it now, but yeah, that was a fun one.
0: It was just, and you know, that's the thing too, is I've noticed in a lot of your films that there is a lot of element of fun in them. I mean, You know, even the Grimm series, you know, all the stuff that you've done has a really great element of fun attached to it.
1: Well, we always, you know, whether it's me or with me with David Greenwald or another writer, uh, we always try to find the humor in whatever situation there is, because that's life. You know, some things, even in a tragedy, there could be some, you know, funny moments. But that's also that's also very Billy Wilder and, you know, Charles Brackett as well.
0: It is. And, and actually, just to drop uh, this one real quick, it's the existentialists. I'm completely into them because basically their whole thing was to laugh at the absurdity of the universe. Yes.
1: Yeah, exactly. You have to. Yeah. And I think, I think we were most affected by Wilder and Brackett in, in that respect. We learned that you could have drama, but even in the darkest drama, there can be moments of humor.
0: Absolutely. And it obviously then shines a light on the drama when you have the humor to it. it
1: right. Exactly. It also releases the tension of the drama. Yeah. So you yeah. can actually find it. Uh, th- I think the film is more enjoyable. Yeah. Or the story is more enjoyable.
0: Uh, here's a question that just came to mind, actually. Because you mentioned earlier that, you know, I was a little bit younger and I didn't know how to say no. When did you learn how to not say or when did you learn how to ignore those people?
1: Um, I never ignore, <laughs> I've never ignored anybody um, Sorry. because you never know, you know, what you might miss. So I listen to everybody and sometimes I try, you know, if I'm doing a rewrite or a, a project for somebody and they have ideas that I don't quite believe in, I figure, you know, I'll, let me give it a shot and I'll see if I can make it work. I mean, that was, to tell you the truth, that was when I was first offered the screenplay called Rush Hour, wow. it, it was kind of a mess. And uh, they wanted me to just toss it, you know, throw it out and tell me what you can do. And I thought, oh, man, Jackie, who's this Jackie Chan character? Because he hadn't done an American film. So I wasn't familiar with him. And it's, there's supposed to be a lot of karate in it. I'm I, I was The last thing I did, I didn't do karate. And then I thought, well, wait a minute what, how can I make this something that I would have fun with? And so, you know, rush hour came out of that. Um, So, you know, I, I kind of listen to everybody. I never turn anybody away. I hear what the ideas are and I try to make them work if I can. So, and, and people with advice, you know, again, it's, it's a collaborative business. So, I try to not ignore anybody unless it's just downright stupid.
0: Okay. Well, what's your bar for downright stupid? <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. It depends on what it is, when it is and all that kind of stuff. I, you know, I don't have any particular bar. I have to listen to this idea and see, does this make sense? Can I make anything out of this? Cause you never know. That's the thing. You know, if you just turn down ideas or turn your nose up at, certain ideas you, you may miss an opportunity that you haven't seen so i i try to
0: be pretty open sounds to me like you sounds are what good. i strive to be and that is an eternal student a what an eternal student
1: oh yeah oh no absolutely i'm still learning i'm i read all the time and still looking at movies and uh, you know i still look at a lot of really old movies uh to see you know what did i miss and how did. did they do this and
0: that's interesting. But, so you go backwards and watch your own films and think I could have done it better?
1: No, there's always something in one of the films I've done that I think, oh, I should have done this or I should have done that. No, I look at, I don't really look at my stuff. I look at, uh, you know, I'm a, you know, cinephile. So um, I learned, because I didn't go to film school, I learned by watching film. Yeah. Yeah. So, cause when I, when I came, I went to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo and uh, I got my degree in English and history, but I had no idea what a screenplay was. And there weren't, uh. there weren't any screenplays available. You know, I started on a typewriter. There were no computers. Right. So I'm an old guy, but yeah, I was, I'm the transition group that went from, you know, typing to, you know, computers. Yeah. The Hidden was the first script I actually wrote on a computer. Huh. And I learned very quickly that when something disappears on the screen and you haven't saved it, you can't get it back. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Oops. These are the floppy drive days. And so, you know, I learned some valuable lessons writing the hidden. You know, thank God I could remember what I had written or close enough to it. But, you know,. <laughs> I, I, I truly believe in backing stuff up now and I ne- have ever since.
0: I would imagine. <laughs> That's a good yeah. lesson. So I don't know. I got off on a
1: tangent there. What were we talking
0: about? <laughs> I don't know. Computers and how awesome yeah. they, are. <laughs> how they are. I don't give a shit. So here's yeah, the yeah, next I, question, I, actually. So this is going to dovetail maybe a little bit. Um, you said something really interesting. So I, I was reading some quotes of yours and I'm going to pull one out. And I think this is everything, quite frankly, when it comes to film. Well, oh, and by the way, I didn't go to film school either, but I basically did because I worked at a video store. How old am I now? Right? Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But that was exactly. it. I was, I was a kid and I was yeah. like, oh, wait, Kurosawa, Lynch, Billy yeah. Wilder, you know. Yep. Yep. Was yeah, I mean,
1: I'm, I'm always surprised when you mentioned like great films to people who are in the film business and they haven't bothered to study their business.
0: <laughs>
1: you know, I mean – students and young writers, I give the young writers, you know, a hundred films to look at Uh because you learn from the writing and the acting and the cinematography and the music and the cost. You learn from everything that has been done before you and you have to build upon it or, you know, do it better or try. But I'm no. just always surprised that you can mention a film to, you know, a, an executive or a, a writer, and they just have never heard of it.
0: Try being. And so they in the haven't music- bothered to watch it. What? <laughs> I'm sorry, I said try being in the music industry and mentioning Elvis Costello and getting blank looks, like I always did. Oh wow. yeah, okay, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I know. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, that's the part of the fun of being in the movie business was. You got to watch a lot of movies. I mean, when David Greenwald and I were at Paramount together, this is before there was, you know, cable channel- channels where you could get movies. Part of our lunch, we would, we would order up films for Paramount to run for us at lunchtime. <laughs> we would run every single Billy Wilder film you could name, and we'd run all the stuff that had to do anything with what we were working on. Wow. And it was great. I mean – you know, I don't think they'd ever do that now. But then, you know, back in the 80s, they would—they were more than happy to show us whatever films that we wanted.
0: A hundred percent. And also, just on a total side note, before I get into the big kahuna here, um, I have to say also that I, too, snuck on the Universal lot because I used to work at MCA Records, which was in the big black tower. So every lunch yeah. hour, I'd, walk on a, I'd get on a ride. <laughs> oh, that'd be fun. But I had to actually sneak over the fence. <laughs> uh, <laughs>
1: You did, really? Yeah, no, we crawl. We crawled over the fence because we were in high school. You know, it was something to do
0: on a Friday night. Yeah, you
1: know, a lot of my friends got caught. I never did.
0: <laughs> it's so telling that and you're in the one because you literally climbed over a fence to get into the universal. I life.
1: climbed over the fence to get in. Yeah, I used to go uh, at the back lot. Then was McHale's Navy and yes. oh, I can't and Cimarron or something. I don't know. You know, really old television. Cimarron.
0: So here's the quote that I pulled out. I thought this was great. You said, uh, Here we go. A little long, but not long winded. You're good. Here we go. The difference between an action film and an adventure film is that adventure is more exotic. There has to be some element beyond the usual car chase. There's a sense of history about an adventure film. Audiences should walk away saying, Hey, I learned something here. I know more than I started with. And the reason I bring this up is because I am such a huge proponent, especially in my therapy work with clients that there are these little stories that float around us every day, right? Like little vignettes, beginning, a middle, and an end. And all you got to do is catch them like butterflies and you got something. But more importantly, if you can extract a meaning, a higher meaning from that story, then you got something. And I think that's what you're saying there, no?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I try to – I mean, pretty much everything I do requires uh, some sort of research, and because I try to ground everything in, in some kind of reality, even when I'm doing, you know, grim, for instance.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah. You know, yeah. everything is based in some kind of science. So yeah. we even tried to explain, this is going off on a tangent, oh. but we even tried to explain how a grim could see the emotional component of a personality, you know. Um, and yeah. so we came up with the idea of, most people have, I think it's four cones in their eyes, which allows them to see um, colors, a certain amount of colors. There's a, it's either three cones or four. I'm, I'm kind of, conf- I can't remember I, exactly. I remember. But there's another cone that some people have that allows them to see many more colors than us normal normal people can see. Really? So we then said. Yeah. Yeah. So then, so that's the part of the research that was so much fun. So we said, well, if you had a sixth cone, you could actually see the emotional element of a person's face when they, you know, if it was a pet, if it was a pedophile who was watching a young child, you you could watch, you could see the change, the emotional change in the face. Anyway, so we try to base everything in, in that kind of stuff. So, but anyway, you learn a little bit about, you know, cones and Rodgers. In your eyes, Rodgers. and then we based everything on some kind of history. I mean, uh, I don't know how well you, will, you know Graham, but you know there was an element of the, the Black Claw and uh-huh. the Besson were rising up against you know regular humans. But Black Claw is basically Black Hand. Right know, during the the, yeah, the Black Hand movement during between World War One and World War Two, I believe it was, or right at World War One. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I I mean I I try to stick in some history whenever I possibly can. And
0: and, even even in, sorry, go ahead. ahead. Your show, your show.
1: Go ahead. Well, well, I was gonna say even in in rush hour, when I thought, okay, what what do I do with Jackie Chan and big climactic fight sequence? And that that's when I thought, well, he's constantly breaking stuff. Right. Whenever he does a fight. So what if he couldn't break stuff? Hmm. And then you then I got into the, you know, the Chinese works of art, the antiquities. So you put the fight in the museum where he he has to protect the stuff from being broken because it's so invaluable and means something to him as he's fighting to, you know, you know, kick ass on the bad guys. Yeah. So anyway. That, that, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of fun to include all that stuff. You know, it, b- the bizarre thing is I tried to get a lot of historical stuff made or, you know, World War II stuff or whatever it was. And you, I never could in the 80s and 90s. Just people just weren't interested. The studios weren't interested. And then National Treasure came along.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And I suddenly had this opportunity, which I've been trying to do for years, to play with history. Right. You know, in a movie right and and so that was so much fun and then after that it seemed to me like the history gates opened and right. suddenly his everybody was doing history anyway um i, I don't know, i can't even remember what tangent we were on at this point
0: that's okay this whole shows a tangent as you probably know okay <laughs> the entire thing is yeah but that's that's incredible you're right like Maybe you're like the uh, – oh, what's a good comparison here? Um, uh, well, you're the standard bearer for getting history back in a film. How about that? Is that too well, big? Too I'd big? like to take
1: credit for that, but yeah. <laughs> I'll Somebody give it else to you. will have to say that. I, I... <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'll i say you will. I'll give it to you. But, okay, fine. I'll take it. Well, <laughs> so as a producer, this is because you've produced so many things, you've written so many things, so many huge budgets, et cetera – As I understand it, because I've talked to a lot of producers on this show of of, of huge things, too, and I get the feeling that essentially a producer's job is to herd cats. How close am I?
1: To herd cats? No. I mean, I'm usually producing something that I'm, you know, very involved in the writing. Um, It's not – you just have to be prepared you know uh, you know if you're if you got a great team and i've never worked with anybody that was you know out of their minds so you know everybody was coming to work and then they're all professionals and we just got the job done I, you know i never really had those you know right. crazy stories of actors going berserk or anything like that you know right. actors get sick and stuff like that. I had Tupac Shakur and gang related. Yeah, He wanted to yeah. drink real alcohol in the scene with Jim Belushi. And I thought, well, it's not really a good idea, but if you really want to do it, okay, we'll see where, see where we go with this. And uh, well, he didn't come to work the next day.
0: Right. Right. Not surprising.
1: But, you know, we made up for it. We've, we've, Found some other things to shoot, and then he was back on set after that. But you know,
0: yeah, I, 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 haven't,
1: I haven't had I haven't had that herding cats thing.
0: That's when you, then you're lucky, perhaps. But also, I think, and you just said why because you you can hire right, or you are able to get a team around you that you don't have to worry about that. Then Is that fair enough. Well, we
1: have a we have a rule where we go no assholes.
0: Yeah, an <laughs> No asshole rule. No,
1: no asshole rule. Yeah, because that they kind of destroy things. So. You know, if you, if you don't have assholes, then you kind of go to work every day and everybody's happy and having a good time. Because, you know, nobody made you be in the movie business or show business or TV. You know, this is a choice. Yeah. So yeah. our feeling is we're going to work. We're going to have fun. This It's a hard job. It's not easy. But, you know, we can't complain about it. You know we're here because we want to be here, so let's have fun while we're doing this because we get it's a it's a privilege to be able to do this. So quit growling and you know get to it.
0: Gratitude, motherfucker. motherfucker.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah, yeah. Which actually is a perfect perfect uh, uh, segue into this quote that I also did read about you, and it was so simple and so elegant, and I think it says everything honestly. And it wasn't it was from another source, but basically it says he you. Tell students that it is possible for, a norm- or for normal people to make it in Hollywood. Tell me more about that, because that resonates so much with me.
1: Well, there's a lot of ways to make it in Hollywood. You have to choose what, I mean, you have to have a passion for it, for one thing. I mean, because you have to, even if you're, you know, working on the camera crew or the set deck, you have to love what you're doing because the hours are so friggin' long. Um, but if you love it, then it's so much easier to go to work and despite the hours. Yeah. Um, yeah. but anybody can, you know, basically any normal person, as long as you have a passion for what you're doing, don't do it because you think you're going to make a lot of money. Don't do it because you think you want to be famous. Don't do it for those are all the wrong reasons. Cause then you'll probably be frustrated and disappointed because, you know, you're going to be frustrated and disappointed in this business. Because sure. there's no way around that. Sure. You're not going to get everything you want. And all the movies you think you, that should be made are not always going to get made. So, you know, I mean, I didn't come from a movie family background. And, you know, um, so I figured out a way in. It's just because you have to have some kind of talent somewhere. Sure. So, sure. but any normal person can have a talent. You just have to find it. But it's basically, it's follow your passion. So if you really want to do this, figure out a way to do it.
0: Right. And not be, and don't be an asshole, hence the rule.
1: And don't be an asshole and don't be discouraged. If you like doing something, like whether it's costume design or writing or whatever, figure out a way in. But, you know, the other thing is so many – and I know you've heard this before. So many young people want to start at the top. Well, that's really hard to do. Yeah, You don't really want to start at the top because you won't have learned anything to make, you know, to give you the experience to make the correct decisions when they have to be made. Correct. So you need to work your way into this business at a lower level and figure out how to work up. But you'll get to know people, and you'll get to know how the system works, and you need to, you know, how to solve problems on the set because they, they come up often, and you have to be able to make fast decisions because it's really costly to wait. So, and that, you know, that's another thing that bothers me about a lot of productions, too, is the waste. It's unbelievable how much money is wasted in this business just because of lack of preparation. That drives yeah. me nuts. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I've I've so, heard it, I've heard it described in a set as like being at the DMV, waiting uh, at a bad set, a bad set.
1: Yeah, at a bad set. If you're prepared and you're ready to go, and the people are ready to go, you're not waiting around much. The only reason you would wait is if the weather turns nasty on you. Yeah, and and then that's not, that's something that's out of your control. We had that problem on Grim when it snowed, you know, in Portland, which doesn't really happen. They have like one snowplow in the whole Portland area. So when it snows, people just abandon their cars and walk. All right. And I'm, I'm not kidding. I mean, one night they shut us down for three days just because of snow. people were living in their sh- staying in their shops. Wow. Overnight because they couldn't get out. So anyway, that's an excuse to, to slow down. But that's right. that's uh, other than an accident or something like that, you know, you should be on schedule.
0: I believe they call it force majeure, the contracts. I'm not so mistaken. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, but again, it's like, it's preparation and it's working with people who are professionals. Yeah. So I've, I've never really had that issue where, you know, unless something drastic happened that you couldn't control.
0: Well, it speaks to your character, to be honest with you, obviously, that you can attract these people in the first place. So I'll give you that. Well,
1: usually they're, well, they're, you know, we try to be... Uh, we try to have fun so we treat everybody respectfully and you know hopefully they treat us Perfect. respectfully as well and when okay. you have fun you know it's like it's a good time
0: here's, here's maybe yeah, i'm gonna wrap this up here in a bit but i did want to get this out um what has been your and i'm just kind of making this up now i guess because again tangents but what would you yeah. say is the most fun experience you've had with a movie be it on set be it with writing most fun you've had very open question
1: uh yeah i don't um hmm. i had a lot of fun on a lot of movies i gotta say grim was probably the most fun i mean it was five and a half years 123 episodes of uh, you know and i'd worked with david greenwald a lot over the years okay and you know uh, my wife and partner who also worked with us for years since paramount was also a producer on the movie and we had todd milliner and sean hayes and We had a really good group of people and really good actors. Everybody got along. So all the actors are still friends. We're still friends with all the actors. You know, that's crazy. You know, it's like a family. So that was the best experience I think I've ever had. And such an extended period of time, five and a half years, 123 episodes. It was, sometimes it was brutal because we were doing 22 scripts a year, every season that, you know, for us was a challenge. But we also knew that we had to get every script done and to the directors and to production a week before prep started because we had a lot of special effects, a lot of location to choose. So we never had a late script. So we took it very seriously. We didn't fool around. We got all scripts in on time. Never a late one. And everybody took their job seriously and did it great. And we had a a lot of fun. So that was, I think, the most fun i ever had in the motion picture business for such an extended period of time
0: wow that's great it's funny actually you just brought up about you know people still being friends after all those years the weirdest thing happened so i interviewed this woman Mary marianne Madalena, who was wes craven's producer forever and i had a wonderful interview and she was great This was like four months ago and then i also last night uh, interviewed uh heather langenkamp who was the actress in a lot of the Freddie movies, obviously. And it was hilarious. Right. Uh, we were ending up the interview and I said, oh, by the way, I, you know, I did talk to Marianne. I don't know if you know her. She's like, I'm driving to her house right now, dropping off some uh, some food. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. I mean, some, some people you really click with and, you know, others you'd work with and you work with them two or three times, but you don't hang out with them. You know, you right. don't go to dinner once a month or anything like that. But the Grimm crew, you know, we, we still see them. Yeah. That's a lot of them all the time.
0: Yeah. You build a family. Um,
1: but we did on that one. You can ask any of the crew and the cast. I mean, we just made another movie here in Montana um, this uh, year ago, which we're now taking to festivals and trying to sell. But we brought in some actors we knew from the NYU, the NYU Team, as we call them, because they are a friend of ours, is a professor of uh, the master's acting program, Jim Calder, and he's trained a lot of the actors that are working. We brought them in and then we brought our grim, a lot of our grim crew in from Portland. Wow. So we put together another family kind of to make that movie. Yeah. And it was great because in that case, we shot it here in Montana and everybody was together as a crew and a cast. So it was one of the few times where the cast and the crew actually hung out together because we were all forced together and to live as a family, it, which was the same deal on, on Grimm as well, because we shot in Portland, Oregon. So we were all in Portland, Oregon together, you know, a lot of the crew and a lot of the cast. But then all the crew from they were in the Portland area became part of our kind of extended family. So uh, it was great, you know. And when you can get a show like that or a movie like that, it's a lot of fun.
0: It absolutely seems like it. You can, you, it's obvious that you can, co- you can kind of bring together a great team of great people. That I can tell already.
1: Yeah, we, we kind of had a lot of luck over the years doing that because, you know, if you can identify, if you can identify the asshole, if you, have, if you have like asshole antenna, you know, you can <laughs> the kind asshole, of yeah. eliminate – yeah, you, you need that sort of because you don't want yellers, you don't want screamers, you don't want prima donnas. Yeah, you so yeah you, yeah, you want to go and get the job done. It's hard enough.
0: Uh, okay, I'm going to close up shop here in a second. I got uh, actually have two things to say. Number one, I, you know, and I'm sure you get this all the time, but uh, put the bunny back in the box, kind of a masterpiece.
1: <laughs> I understand. Uh, yeah, that's a crazy one. I had a different ending, but
0: I know, know you did. I know you did. We talk, I saw the thing, but regardless. Yeah, you saw the thing? Yeah. Um, you so, know, the bunny, <laughs> bunny in the box is fine. Great. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I did want to just, so, let me close this up, and I close this up the same way, too. And this is, I'm excited to hear your answer to this one. Ask the same question to each other person. And that is, as a creative, as in when you're writing a script, when do you know that you're done?
1: Um, when do you know you're done? You know, when it's in the theater, there you go, you know, it really isn't done until you're in the theater because you can make changes up until that moment. So, you know, now when am I done with the script? You know, that again, it's still when it's in the theater, because even when you're done with the film, you could say, oh, we need to reshoot that scene. That's true. So then you're back to writing and then you're back to shooting and then all that same thing. So when you're when it's in the movie theater or when it's, you know, published, then you're done. You can't fix it after that.
0: Right. Right. But I guess the question becomes, when do you know how to hit send on your script? Like, I am done. I'm ready. To, I'm proud of this. I'm done.
1: When my wife says so.
0: There you go. <laughs> That's it. That's the
1: answer. Well, you need you need somebody who's going to say, okay, you're done. Yeah. You know, you you can't, you're not, you can't be the judge of that.
0: No, no. I, I gotta be honest. I've asked that question to at least a hundred different people and I get completely wonderfully different answers. Some of them are basically the same sort of thematically. I have not had that answer yet. And that is dead on. Well done.
1: Yeah. Well, my wife has been my partner for years too. So she's, sure. she's the first one that has to read everything.
0: Yeah, that's right. So, you know, right. you,
1: you, 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 you get a, you know, I trust her. You know, if she said something isn't quite right, all right, it probably isn't. So when Lynn says it's done, it's done.
0: It's done. That's that's it. Lynn approved. Done. Yeah. It's got the
1: (laughs) Lynn stamp of approval.
0: Well, listen, my friend, I've had an absolutely wonderful time talking to you. Here is how I like to end these things. I'm going to uh, pretend to say goodbye. You're going to pretend to say goodbye. I'm going to pretend to hang up, and we'll do a quick uh, post-interview chat. Deal? Sure. You got it. All right, hang tight. Well, hang for nothing. Here's the here's a fake goodbye. I, I had an amazing time with you uh, talking with you, Jim. However, I did not get into, and I really do want to uh, watch this with great clarity. Wacko featuring Joe Don Baker and Joe Kennedy. Can't wait for that. But. Oh, I can I can
1: tell you a quick story about that one. Please go. Please go. All right. So David and Greenwald and I were called in this room, and they said, "They said, uh, can you fix this script that we have?" And so we did this one thing where we pitched this idea of this cop going to the classic windowsill and putting his finger on the windowsill and dragging it across and then licking his finger, and he goes, dust. (laughs) And for some reason, that stupid idea got us the job, and we were paid like $15,000 to rewrite this script in two weeks, and we were ecstatic because that's the most money we'd ever earned. So, yeah, that was a rewrite.
0: That That one paid the bills. (laughs) That movie was insane. (laughs) The movie looks so fucking bananas. I love it. Almost like Kentucky Fried. There's a lot of Kentucky Fried. Did you find it?
1: How did you find it? It's nuts. It's you know what the original title was? What? The 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 Lawnmower Killer. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, of
0: course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, we got paid whatever you did a job yeah we did a job wow that's amazing from uh i mean money monster was i I could go on for days about your scripts i think they're fantastic but the highlight for me at least is wacko and the hidden that's that's where i'm going with this whole show oh there you go okay wow (laughs) that's what i get out of this so anyway (laughs) your turn say goodbye to me and we'll pretend to hang up all
1: right thank you very much for the interview and i appreciate it and i loved it and uh see you next time.
0: Outstanding, hang tight. And quick!